10. This is all within the first divine institution that we know as volition. And uh, volition is taught all through the scripture. It's, it's kind of hard to deny the fact that uh, human beings have been given uh, the privilege of free will. It's kind of hard to know all the whys and why God chose to do this, knowing that so many would choose against him over the course of time. But uh, I guess that's part of the divine mystery that we'll know fully about one of these days when we, whenever we get there, when we stand in front of him. But he gave us the ability to choose. Started with Adam in the human race. And um, it, it's interesting that all sin... Now, sin is a missing of the mark. That means that you have failed somewhere, somehow. Is uh, Whether known or unknown involves decisions. You've either decided not to learn about something you should have learned about and made the wrong decision, or you've decided to just go against it. We looked at negative volition. We term that, or disobedience. It's just different areas of, of disobedience. And it's uh, choosing against God's prescriptions. Uh, for thought, speech, and actions. And we looked at four different areas of what we call negative volition. The first one does not desire a relationship with a creator. Now that's about as negative as it gets. We looked also at positive volition or obedience. Obedience to what God has prescribed. And we looked at the act of obedience of the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith. That's what saves a person from the penalty for sin. And it begins the journey of positive volition, where we're called to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we, this morning we're going to look at the parable of the sower. And I'm going to go to Matthew 13. But before we begin uh, to look at this, we're going to take a few minutes for prayer. It's important spiritual things are spiritually discerned according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You need to, to uh, understand and connect to the Holy Spirit. You, you uh, place yourself in Him because He's the revealer of all truth. He's the one who reveals Jesus Christ. And the scriptures are about Jesus Christ. So we need to be prepared to let the Holy Spirit illuminate us. Now, he's not going to inspire us. That word is used for inspiration of Scripture. We use it in human realms all the time, but we don't use it in its technical sense of uh, inspiration of Scripture. But illumination of the Scripture is what we are looking for because the inspired word has already been inspired and written down, and that's what we are called to study. So let us take a few moments for prayer to present ourselves in front of the throne of grace. Uh, just ask that the Holy Spirit would be our real teacher this morning. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, again, we are so blessed, honored, and privileged to be part of your family. Father, we have so many blessings we so easily uh, forget or maybe even don't understand the fact that we are all priests to you, that we are royal priests, that we're part of a royal family. And Father, we have blessings beyond anything we can really grasp already, but Father, you've laid out more for us. So I pray this morning that the Holy Spirit would enlighten and challenge and convict us where we need it so that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.
Well, we're going to look at the parable of the sower because it teaches about four different types of volitional responses by people. Uh, we're going to go a little deeper into this because there is, of course, always the surface layer of the scripture, but then there is a depth. And Ephesians 3 talks about knowing the height, width, depth, and breadth of the love of God. And you do that by the height, width, depth, and breadth of the Word of God. That's how you come to know it um, most genuinely. Hebrews, not Hebrews, that's a good passage. 13, that's also a good passage. Verse 18 says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, does not understand it. The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Now, I'm not going to do a full exegesis of these verses, but understand means basically you understand and you believe that that's what is true. So it encompasses frequently an element of belief in it. And that's what he's saying. They don't accept what, that, what has been taught. He says... Um, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. Okay, the sower sows the seed. That's what sowers do. And as you know, seed is, um, you put more seeds in than you want plants. That's just the way things, things work. Verse 20, he says, And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. He says, yet he has no firm root in himself, and it's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So this is the new believer. It's kind of like the, uh, the moonflower, I see. The moonflower is a great illustration of it. I love moonflowers. And, of course, then, of course, people will figure out how to smoke them and do things they shouldn't be doing with them. And then they'll get outlawed and banned and all that sort of stuff. And we have some wild ones that, that um, uh, we follow occasionally. <laughs> we watch because they're so beautiful to watch. They... they pop out just when the moon's getting ready to come out and they do great all night long and they do great until the sun comes up and a little bit of pressure on them and they're gone they're wilted and the next batch comes out and does the same thing that's a believer who hears the word they're excited they know their sins are forgiven and they they go hoorah and they they jump up and down and they're excited about the lord and then pressure pressure hits because of the word and it says then they fall away they can't handle the pressure. They're a toddler that doesn't know how to get outside and deal with issues and problems. Maybe not taught, properly taught, but there are a lot of believers that are that way. We run into them all over the world. Uh, they're, they're saved. They know they're sa they've been saved because they have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then pressure hits and they haven't been taught. They have no firm foundation in the word. And that's a big part of the role we play in a lot of places around the world is trying to teach them God's word to the point that they'll become more stable in in this life and it says and the one in verse 22 on whom seed was sown among the thorns now this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful now God wants his kids to produce fruit that's what he wants. That's his desire. You got that taught all over the Bible. John 15, the parable of the vine, is about fruit production. He wants fruit produced. 
But it says the deceitfulness of riches choked the word. Oh, some people get more interested in money than in God's word. They want the uh, real gold and uh, the the gold of the world instead of the. I advise you to buy from me the real gold uh, of Revelation three. It says it becomes unfruitful. Now this is an individual who starts off good. Notice they endured the sun. Okay, they've endured the tribulation. They've endured some pressure. They've gone through a, a degree of spiritual growth, but then the details of life come in and choke it out. And then they get where they're not fruitful. They're not going to church. They're not serving others. They're only interested. It says the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And then the last one, the fourth one, and the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil. This is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. Okay? So there are those first who never accept the gospel. That's the first one that's being talked about. Then there are those who have no depth in their growth. They have no spiritual growth to go along with it. And they don't see that God's word is not just a nice thing to learn about as the way of life. It is how we are called to live. The next one is the group that heard it, listened to it, applied it, and then got choked out because they got their eyes on other things, the things of the world, the deceitfulness of riches. And the last one, notice the last one has endured the persecution. It has endured the temptation of riches. It has endured all those things and still goes on to produce fruit. Now, the Lord taught this to his disciples and to the multitudes. It's found in three of the Gospels, this parable with, with slightly different nuances in it. And that people say, well, it's a contradiction in the Bible. I said, no, it's not. He taught it three different times. It's recorded by three different people. So it's no argument. Uh, shouldn't be an argument there. Anyway, there's a parable of the sower. Those who, have, who never accept the gospel, it's there. It's been presented to them. They don't, they don't take it. And the next thing you know, while it might have been in the forefront and they're thinking about it, it's a seed on the road. If they don't act on it, the devil snatches it away. Now, it's not saying they can't be saved. It's just saying that they missed that opportunity at that point. No depth in their growth, in their spiritual growth. No, no calmness about them. No maturity level that is there. And they are choked by the problems of the world. Now, that we see all the time anymore. We were talking this morning about kids' soccer. Back in the late 70s when I was going to seminary, some people I know, I loved, they were great people, they loved the Word, they loved God, and the kids got into soccer on Sunday mornings. And why they permitted them to make that decision, there's plenty of other sports that did not play their games on Sunday mornings. And the next thing you know, they start sliding away, easing away. And, and suddenly, the intake of God's Word, the importance of it, the importance of assembly with other believers falls by the wayside. And the next thing you know, the world chokes it out. And then the fourth group is those who overcome and produce fruit. They stand firm. They know what to do. They know when to do it. They're praying for wisdom in the uh, gray areas, and they're ready to do it. Now, believers who choose to stop growing in the faith become operationally dead. I categorize, I qualify the word dead. 
because there's at least eight different kinds of death that's described in Scripture. Just because it says dead doesn't mean the one that we normally think about physical death that puts us in the grave or uh, to the cremation chamber or whatever. That is, that is physical death that we're talking about. But there's a spiritual death as well. There is an operational death. That's what we're talking about here. Abraham was as good as sexually dead. There's a sexual death that comes along. Death's root meaning is separation. Okay, it's a separation of one thing from another. And so those who choose to stop growing in the faith, stop producing fruit, become operationally dead and can lose the maturity they once gained. See, we're called to grow, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're supposed to grow until we, till we die physically, but we're not supposed to be the walking dead. We're not supposed to be the zombies walking around this world who are physically alive and, and maybe still connected to, to, to God. I mean, because they've been saved by grace through faith. It's not of themselves, so they've been saved. But they're walking around operationally dead. They, they're just not willing to do the things that are, that are pleasing in the eyes of the Lord anymore. Now, this has been known as backsliding. You got a Baptist background, it's called backsliding, and, uh, and or reversionism. Reversionism is when you start reverting back and acting like an unbeliever, okay? And that's, um, depending on which circle uh, uh, group that you came from, that's probably how you've heard it, backsliding or reversionism. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, I love this passage, and it's hard not to make a lot of comments on it when I run into it. Uh, you'll notice that both of these statements assume a level of growth has occurred and that believers begin to act like unbelievers. So the backsliding means that you've made progress, but you're sliding backwards. Okay, reversionism means that you have made progress, but you're sliding backwards. Some people, as we see, never make any progress. So there's not a whole lot of backsliding or reversionism. When you're born again, you're born again, but you've got to be reprogrammed, if you will. You have to learn God's Word and try to, to live it. 1 Corinthians 9, I love Paul's writing. He says, do not run in such a way. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Okay, we're in the Christian life. It is a race. It's one of the metaphors used to describe the Christian life. Now, who are you running against? Other believers or the devil? See, we're not supposed to run against other believers. That is self-exaltation. There's all kinds of stuff that goes there. We're running against the devil and his forces. Run to win this thing. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. So there's some self-discipline that goes with this. It seemed like I read that was part of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And it says, They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. He's saying, look what Olympic runners in Olympic, in Olympic games, look at the discipline they exercise to get to that point to be able to compete. And do any of them just want to compete or do they want to win? He's using that, that analogy. You go to the Olympics, I would think you'd want to win. And you do the things that need to be done in order to do that. And they said they do that to receive a perishable wreath. 
something that's going to fade away. But the, the crown we're looking for is one that will never fade away. Paul says, therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. <laughs> now, if, if you're running a race like on a 440 or 880 and you're running on a track, you got to stay in your lane. You got to run in the lane. So you need some aim to where you're going, a direction to where you're going. Because you can't zigzag all over the place and win the race. You're just running farther if you don't stay in, in the lane. And he says, and I boxed in such a way as not beating the air. I think this was George Foreman's mantra whenever he uh, came back for the third or fourth or fifth time that he came back and got into the ring there because the old man would stand out there in the ring and all these young guys are bouncing around he'd just stand out there and he would hit about 80% of his punches that's what he would do instead of the 30% that these other guys were doing He's, I, I'm not doing any of this shadow boxing anymore this takes away my strength and here's Paul that says I box in a way as not beating the ear, I buffet my body, I make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now some people say that Paul lost, could lose his salvation. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that I might not win the crown. Because some of the crown, that takes us to a whole other systematic study of crowns. Some of the crowns you get for passing one of the big tests of life. But some of them you get for persevering to the end. And you don't get the one, the crown of life, for persevering to the end if you don't persevere to the end. And that's what he's saying. If I start going backwards, if I get out of this race, if I start doing things the wrong way, making the wrong decisions, making bad decisions, that's what he's talking about, disqualified from a crown. And Paul wanted them all. Did he not? I think he pretty clearly said that. Now, sin unchecked, that is unchecked, descends into the depths of evil. For an individual, a nation, and even a world. That's what happens. When sin gets in the life of anybody, it will uh, tear an individual apart, a nation apart, or the world. Genesis 6 is the example of tearing the world apart. Genesis 6, you read the first few verses, all their thoughts were only evil continually. So what did God do? He wiped them all out except eight, is what he did. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? There's times that grace runs out when sin continues to descend into the depths of evil. How about Romans 1, verse 18 to 32? This kind of gives us an outline. So turn there with me, if you would, to Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18, we've heard this many times. Again, we're not going to do an exegesis of this passage this morning. Because he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Okay? Now, that, those, these are bold statements. These are important statements. Uh, 
You know, sometimes people get into the, what about those who never heard? What about this? And I mean, they go off out into the Thule's. And what it basically is saying is that God has made himself evident to who? Some men? No, to, to men. But they suppress it. Many of them do. He says, for since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they're without excuse. Okay? Even in the middle of nowhere, I've talked to missionaries that have been into Venezuela, into some of the uh, tribal areas that made National Geographic. I mean, they, they were rough areas. And when they go in there, they're, they, have, they go in there, Wycliffe translators go in, learn the language, develop a language, oftentimes write a language, and then teach the people how to do it. And you know what they teach them how to read? The Bible. That's what they go in and do and develop a Wycliffe translation of it. And that's, to me, that is uh, one of the highest callings. For people to do that. For many of them it's a 30, 40, 50 year mission. That they go on to move into that area. And, and accomplish that mis mission and task. But even going in there. They have a concept that there is a creator. Why? Because they look at his handiwork. All day long. They're not distracted by the cell phones and junk like that. They look at his handiwork all day long. And so the question is, do they want a relationship with a God who made it all? And if they do, I believe God will get them the, get them the gospel and get it to them very clearly. He says, here it says, for they are without excuse. If you don't like it, you have to take that up with God. But that's what this says. Even though they knew God, they did not, not, not honor him as God or give thanks. And they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart was darkened. Look at this process. There's a God consciousness. There's a turning away. And this turning away into sin into evil is not automatic. But it is something that involves a process. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And boy, have we got a bunch of that in this nation but you know you can find that in the deepest darkest recesses of Africa India uh, Burma that the the smartest one in the village is professing to be wise but when you proclaim yourself wise you better watch out do not lean on your own understanding didn't you read that Proverbs 3 in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths we have to be careful about the knowledge we have uh, leading us astray he says they became fools they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four footed animals and crawling creatures therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul amended his own statement there. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. See the descent into evil? 
For their women exchange the natural function for that which is not natural. And in the same way, also the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. This is volition. Why does God do this? God established volition, so he has to let it play out. To do those things that are not proper. And what are things that are not proper? Filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil. Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Now this last phrase, you, that list, Paul likes list of sins. This last phrase says, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, what does God think about liars, cheaters, and all that? I'm reminded a little later on in Romans, the end of chapter 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Sometimes you're not in authority to do anything about it, and you can't. But what you can do is pray, and remember that the Lord has promised to deal with it. Now, as a believer, you see, this is what... This is talking about the descent into evil of unbelievers. But believers can do the same thing as unbelievers. Now, <clears throat> sin that's unchecked leads to that. Now, we're going to look at eight things here that, that describe the descent into evil. And there's a, probably heard of the sin unto death. That's used in 1 John chapter 5. That's one of the passages. There is a sin leading unto death. Okay? And what leads to the sin unto death? Well, this process of descent into evil can be a leader to the sin unto death. Now, I've had people, I've, I've been around a long time, been a pastor a long time. I've had people that, that tell me, some uh, loved one dies in an unusual way and they come to me and say, was that the sin unto death? And my answer is, I do not know because I'm not God. I don't know what was going on in their head there. Could it be just the normal function or could it be that their sins piled up to the point that God took them out in that way? I, I don't know. I've seen people and heard of people that died grisly deaths that seemed to be a dying grace because they had the right attitude toward God. And other people may die calm deaths, but it could be the sin unto death. That's one of those things that I can honestly say, I'm not God, and I'm not going to try to make that judgment. I don't think any of us should. Now, reactions occur. Let's just take a look. We can look at ourselves. We can look at the world and see if these things are true because... Here is kind of a picture of the process that emerges as you study categorically issues of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Here's a process that kind of uh, occurs. And then reactions occur to various problems of life. Now, have you had any problems of life this week? 
Well, you might as well nod your head yes, because that's we all have. That's what it is. I ended up calling 911 driving eastbound on I-40 the other day because two people came by me somewhere over 100 miles an hour at least, and they were either racing or it was a road rage incident. Couldn't tell which, but they flew by at such an incredible rate of speed, and it was approaching the Amarillo Junction where I-44 goes north and south and all that, and I managed to get 911. I said, I don't know what happened at I-44. I don't know if they went north or south or continued on eastbound, but you need to get these people off of the road. Okay, that was a circumstance of life. Now, the circumstances of life we run into can fit all different kinds of, of, of problems and issue. You know, just like that parking space you have picked out that you're getting ready to pull into, and somebody in a little bitty car whips in there in front of you. I mean, that's a circumstance of life, so how are you going to handle it? Now, the various problems of life occur. And when they're not dealt with with wisdom that comes from God's word, the reactions can lead to further problems. Saul is kind of our poster child for this. Saul was appointed king. Saul disobeyed. Saul was losing his kingdom to David, and he got madder and madder at David. And you can see this descent into evil by Saul, where he eventually dies, what many would say was the sin unto death, when he commits suicide and falls on his sword and all that. So Saul is pretty well a picture of this, because he gets David close to him. He tries to kill him multiple times. He gets madder and madder and madder. So you can see Saul, and, and some say, well, Saul was never a believer, but Saul prophesied. Uh, I don't see a lot of unbelievers prophesying in Scripture. So was he the right guy? Yeah, he was picked to begin with. Okay, but was he the right guy? Well, he was, he was the one God had chosen at that time. Was he a believer? I think so. What did he do? Descend off into evil. Now, <clears throat> James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, pretty well describes this, this situation. Who among you is wise and understanding? Question mark. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. You think we need to put some of these verses up for, our, for some of our uh, Washington politicians? This wisdom is not that which comes down from above and it is earthly natural and demonic see wisdom that promotes selfish ambition and arrogance and lying against the truth that is demonic okay here's a direct statement if we need direct statements to make direct statements here's a direct statement for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist there's disorder in every evil thing would you say that maybe in the United States there's some jealousy and selfish ambition? What do we see in the streets? In a lot of places, disorder and every evil thing. But contrast, I love this, when you get a Allah, which <laughs> I don't really want to say is a big but, but <laughs> it's a strong one. <laughs> Too many other definitions of that. 
but it is a strong contrast. Allah is the strong contrast that is used there. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now look at the contrast in James, the first book of the New Testament written. And here is a tremendous picture of the wisdom of the earth, which is all about promoting self and the wisdom that comes down from above, which is about serving others and serving God. There's a big contrast, a big difference in it. Now, <clears throat> reactions occur to these various problems of life. And if they're not dealt with through the wisdom that comes from God's word, the reactions lead to further problems. That's what happens. Now, <clears throat> human solutions to the problems of life lead to a search for happiness through whatever means one can find. They're wrong goals. Whenever there is a problem that comes up and we have a human solution to it, and you say, well, what is an example of a human solution? Well, uh, I understand quite a bit about psychology and the way it works. Modern-day psychology is, a, is good to identify problems, but at best it can offer a Band-Aid. It offers no solutions. Our, our daughter got a master's degree in psychology, and she was working on her doctorate, and they asked her at one of the local universities, well, what do you want to be? And she said, I want to be a, a Christian counselor. And the dean of the college said, I didn't know there was such a thing, a Christian psychologist. And they basically, I'm not going there. Anyway, they never, they never approved her doctoral thesis, is what it amounted to. Now, when... Psychology, modern-day psychology, is a human solution to try and deal with a problem. What's the problem? I feel bad. We all feel bad at different times. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a test and a temptation when that happens. We all feel bad at different times. Now, if we go to human solutions to try and drown our fears, if you will. If we go to human solutions, it's, it's not ever going to solve anything. It's just going to be a band-aid. There are divine solutions given to us throughout Scripture because the Lord is a great physician. He is the great healer. And He tells us what to do. Now, there is proper medical treatments. There's all kinds of things that go with that. And it's not negating any of that whatsoever. But what it does is that when we have an attitude that a person placing person, place, thing, or event is going to solve our problems. Now, the Lord is the problem solver. That's who He is. And we have to go to His Word. See, the wisdom from above tells me go to God's Word and find the answer and look for the answer. And if I don't know the answer, pray about it. Why? Because He said, He who lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach. And while you're not going to find a specific answer in the book probably for your problem. What you are going to find is guidance as to what to, what to do with it. The, uh, we find that um, uh, people often want to be happy. They've done 
all kinds of things on the street. Well, what do you want most out of this life? Well, I just won't be happy. Wrong answer. How many people would say, I just want to be obedient to God? Not a lot of them, not even Christians. But what is the right answer? I want to be obedient to God. I want to let Him direct my life, not the environment. And what does the environment do with this? What does is, what is anti-theistic theory of evolution do with such things? You're a product of your environment. It's called environmental determinism. Okay, And your environment is, is making your decisions for you. Now, that's, that's shown to be wrong at different times. But when you get overwhelmed with it, and they keep telling the same lie over and over and over, suddenly they tell you that's truth, and it's not truth. And if we're going to stand firm against it, we've got to pay attention and recognize it when it happens. Because to have your senses trained to discern good and evil is a training process. So you have to see it when it starts coming in. And if they start telling me I'm a product of my environment, then my response as a Christian should be, no, I'm a product of my decisions. Because the environment never made the decisions for me. No matter what the environment was. Environment can be a can lead environment can influence no argument about that but they do not have the power to make the decisions for us now <clears throat> the human solutions what happens when the human solutions don't work because they're never going to work for long if they work for a little bit it brings a temporary happiness but the same problems keep coming back because you haven't dealt with them in a spiritual manner the problems intensify at least in the mind. Now some people call these the inner demons. Look at Saul. Again, we go back to Saul and he starts going down the wrong road here away from God and and uh, you can read in the in the, uh, Samuel you can read about what happened and he's just going a little better than half nuts trying to deal with these things. So we have a reaction to a set of circumstances that comes in, and it's a test to trust God or to trust the world is what it boils down to. So what are we going to trust? If we trust the world, it is not going to provide the happiness that we want, the joy that we seek. It's not going to do that. All it'll do is provide a temporary happiness at best. I know it's easy for us to think, well, if I just had... If I just had a different job, then I would be happy. If I just had more money, then I would be happy. If I just had, and this, if I just had, and you can fill in the blank there, it's not going to solve your problems. It does not have the power to do it. So the problems intensify. This happens, and see, this happens in unbelievers because they 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 lose it. They don't all reach a high level of a descent into evil they fight it off but this is the way it progresses unless it's battled the problems intensify rational thought becomes more and more replaced with emotional responses hopefully we're taught early on about rational thought but it's not being taught as much anymore well, what do you feel like how does this make you feel and you hear that through um reporters 
oftentimes drive me crazy. A lot of them don't seem to have a, any idea what truth is. But they go up to somebody that has just had a significant loss in the family or tragic loss in the family. They go up to them, well, how did that make you feel? That is a stupid question. <laughs> that is, what it made me feel like was punching you. That's what it made me feel like. But people are put on the spot and they can't do that. But it becomes more and more replaced with emotional responses. The Bible talks about being tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. Emotions are the things that guide us instead of a, a rational thought. And it can lead to the soul not thinking or reasonably responding. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, it talks about a loss of reasoning. It says these, and he's talking about false prophets and those that, he is, that the false prophet has led astray. These, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. What does that tell us about animals? There's some things that they don't have that humans have. They call us the human animal. Why do they keep promoting the human animal? So they will say that you're a product of your environment. You're just an, a responder is all you are. You put two sets of bowls, a different kind of food out in front of a dog, then what are they going to pick? The ones that trigger their senses more. It wasn't really a choice. They don't have a capability of making a moral cho choice. They don't have that. That's not what's built into animals. That's what makes us different. We have the capability of, of doing that. 2 Peter 2, 12, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. So he's saying that human beings can become like animals. And honestly, some of the stuff I've seen in the streets lately going on looks like animals. That's what it looks like to me. Now, you can make a point, but you don't burn down somebody else's property in the process of doing it. That becomes a crime. There's no reason behind that that is legitimate. Now, if this turning from God continues for an extended period of time, the soul can reject all of God's viewpoint. It can reject all of it. Rejection of divine viewpoint leads to an emptiness of soul that is a vacuum that'll want to be filled. It's been said for a long time that there's a hole inside every human being. The God hole it is a hole that only God can fill. Well, where did that come from? The Greek calls it the matiotes. You see it translated as futility, vanity. It's used three times in the New Testament. And here are the places it's used. First of all, all of creation is empty without God. Romans 8.20 is talking about the whole creation and futility that is there. All of creation without God is, is empty. Secondly, it's a characteristic of an unbeliever. An unbeliever in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 20, Ephesians 4 says, This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer, just as the Gentiles walk, in the matiotes of their mind. 
being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of their hardness of heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality, for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And then he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. Believers are not supposed to act like unbelievers. And the futility or vanity of their mind, the emptiness of their mind. It's kind of interesting that, that um, uh, arrogance is, is often described as uh, having nothing up there right. <laughs> it's an airhead. The only other, uh, all of creation, it's a characteristic of an unbeliever. And when filled with evil, if there's a hole inside everybody, you're going to fill it with something. Because one thing you learn in, in high school uh, science is that a vacuum sucks. It pulls things into it. It's what it does. And it's either going to pull God's viewpoint or human viewpoint into it. One thing or the other. It is going to fill itself. And <clears throat> Second Peter chapter 2 verse 17. We just saw chapter 12, verse 12 and 13 out of that. says these are springs without water. Again, talking about false teachers and prophets. Mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of emptiness, vanity, mataiotes. They entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. Those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Promising them freedom. This sound like false teacher promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption for by what a man is overcome by this he is enslaved now we're called to be overcome by Christ we are called to be bond servants of Christ that's what we are called to do the only other option To divine viewpoint is worldly viewpoint. That's the only other option. Divine viewpoint is what God wants me to think. Worldly viewpoint is, is what Satan wants me to think. It's authored by Satan. Genesis 3. Uh, we see that picture, the serpent in the garden. How he is manipulating the woman that is there. How he's leading her astray and doing it. And we read passages like John 8 that says he was a murderer from the beginning. He is a liar from the beginning. He is the, the liar and the father of lies. That's who he is. So we have divine viewpoint that God has given us or we have worldly viewpoint to choose from and we have a vacuum inside of us that's going to pick something. So the question is what are we going to pick? Now it should be pretty clear if we get wrapped up in this human viewpoint we need to replace some stuff. We need to replace. What do we replace it with? Devotional books, which that's not a bad thing. Good place to start. But you need the solid food of the Word of God. That's the that's the only thing that will provide some answers and guidance in this this life. Well, I ran out of time again. It seemed like I just get my throat cleared by the time I get done. But we're going to pick this up, and then we're going to look at the contrast to this next week. It's, it's going to be kind of neat. Next Sunday is, 
is uh, kind of we get ready for Thanksgiving and uh, oftentimes we do a communion. We just did one, so we're not going to do one. But I've got a couple of things that are in line with, with what these classes have been teaching that I think you're going to find uh, interesting and special to go along with getting us ready for Thanksgiving. Uh, the way Thanksgiving is going, uh, we may not have the big gatherings like we've once had. We would, we would love to do that. Our family would love to do that, but we just have to see. And you know what we need? Wisdom. Wisdom. Are we or aren't we? What are we going to do? We need wisdom. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your love, grace, mercy. Thank you for all you poured out upon us. I pray, Father, that we be able to remember this and identify the problems. Also, help us to understand what's going on in this world as they turn their back more and more on you. Father, I pray your grace would indeed be sufficient for us. I pray we would fill, be filled with, with uh, your love and your word that we might be able to use it to serve others. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.